Hello there. There I am. Hello and welcome to <laughs> No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you with us. 1972 was the year that I became a teenager. And back then, the primary vehicle for youth culture was not the smartphone. It was the transistor radio. I, as I said to one of my kids the other day, when I was your age, the Internet was FM radio. Uh, and the year that I turned 13... The song Day by Day from the rock opera Godspell entered the Billboard Top 20. And you may or may not be familiar with the musical, but it is um, Godspell's Old English for Gospel, and the show is based on the parables and the passion, uh, especially according to the Gospel of Matthew. And the song lyrics are primarily taken from Old English hymns, you know, traditional hymns, and presumably because they were in the public domain. Now, as a typical unchurched teenager in the 1970s, Christianity was not even on my radar, but rock music certainly was. And Day by Day fit right into that kind of soft rock, uh, folk rock genre that was popular at the time, especially with a budding guitar player such as myself, uh, as I was in the seventh grade. You know, I, I didn't know that the song was from a musical. I didn't know that it was intended to be a Christian song, uh, but I can recall strumming along with Day by Day on my first acoustic guitar. Anyway, music and Christianity kind of collided in my life uh, when an attractive young English teacher invited me to an after-school club where she said kids get together to rap, which uh, in 1970s parlance meant to have a casual conversation, not to recite vicious poetry over the same four bars of music repeated ad nauseum. Anyway, she said that, you know, sometimes somebody will play guitar and often that they would sing together. And she assured me that I would fit right in, which, of course, is music to the ears to an awkward 13-year-old. But when I attended my first and only meeting, I discovered that it was a club for born-again Christians and that every one of them had the same... Um, the same idea, right? That that meeting, they were all hoping to get yours truly saved. And needless to say, I left unsaved and also with a rather bad taste in my mouth. What's wrong with Christianity, I wondered, if they have to try and trick you into it. Now, and this may be why even, you know, now many decades after my conversion to Catholicism, I have still not warmed up to the, you know, sort of pop culture evangelization and, you know, things like Life Teen or World Youth Day or whatever. Ironically, though, it was my medievalism that brought me back around to the song Day by Day when I discovered a prayer uh, from an English bishop of the 13th century, medieval English bishop named Sir St. Richard of Chichester. And I you know, discovered that his words had been enshrined in the Anglophone Catholic catechetical tradition. The lyric, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly. Well, that's, you know, the, the answer to the question, what is the meaning and purpose of life from the old penny catechism? To know, love, and serve God. And yet, this, this very simple and yet profound medieval formula from St. Richard, it represents what I call today a medieval mentality. And I've, I've talked about this frequently on this program over the years, and, and I believe that it, that mentality is quite powerfully expressed in a, uh, a modern encyclical, one promulgated by Pope St. John Paul II at the dawn of the 21st century, called Tertio Millennio Ineunte, 
as we enter the third millennium. To see thee more clearly, the Holy Father expressed his desire that Catholics everywhere would, quote, open their eyes to the amazement of those things that God hath prepared for those who love him, those things which eye hath not seen, nor hath ear heard, nor hath it ever even entered into the heart of man. Namely, the glory and happiness that God has revealed in the church, and especially our access to that glory and happiness in the Holy Eucharist. To love thee more dearly, to this end, the Pope uh, asked for an end to liturgical abuse in the Novus Ordo Missae. And he mandated a reform, which then became the instruction Redemptionis Sacramentum, wherein a whole host of common liturgical abuses were, in the language of the instruction, reprobated, which is not just forbidden, but condemned most forcefully. A whole host of abuses that, sadly, you still encounter with some regularity at, at many, if not most, typical parish masses on a Sunday. Now, the U.S. bishops are currently trying to foster a Eucharistic revival. But amidst all the meetings and the activity and the suggested, suggested initiatives, one has been conspicuous by its absence, and I think it's the most obvious. Stop abusing the liturgy. If you want people to take the Eucharist seriously, then lead by example. And then to follow the more nearly, the main thrust of St. John Paul's encyclical is for Catholics to strive for personal holiness. What the medievals called the quest for Christian perfection. And he places that a personal relationship with Christ in prayerful dialogue, in meditation on Scripture and the Catechism, frequent confession, and by centering one's life on the Eucharist and thereby preserving the state of grace. And this program, um, to which he says, the key to which is the Holy Rosary, represents a thoroughly medieval mentality. And I suggest it is the antidote for Christian apathy and the modernism that so pervades Catholic belief and practice today. Now that encyclical is a mere 22 years old. And yet, as the character of Merlin says in John Borman's Excalibur, it is the doom of men that they forget. And speaking of forgotten things, as a medievalist and a Catholic and a fan of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, I think that one of the, you know one of my great disappointments regarding Peter Jackson's film trilogy was the absence of the scouring of the Shire. Right in Tolkien's masterpiece, the Shire did not go untouched by the War of the Ring, and and uh, after everybody else gets their happy ending, the hobbits return to the Shire to find their beloved home is occupied by treacherous vandals. And it's only by virtue of their experience on the quest that they have the skills and the fortitude to rescue the Shire from the ravages imposed by a vengeful Sauron. And this is actually the point, the whole point of the story, that the hobbits, with true fortitude, true courage, that as a result of simple virtue, preserve the Shire. And because this ending was forgotten in the films, <clears throat> those for whom Jackson's trilogy represents their only exposure to Lord of the Rings, uh, they're never going to know the real lesson of Tolkien's epic. And movie versions of the King Arthur legend also have their forgotten ending. You know, whether or not Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere were actually guilty of adultery 
and even the medieval versions differ. It was precisely their forbidden love that brought about the fall of Camelot. Uh, the king's wicked nephew-slash-bastard son, Mordred, betrays the lovers to the king and sets in motion a chain of events that lead to a final confrontation between Mordred and Arthur that kills them both. And the dying king orders the loyal Sir Bedivere to return the sword Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake, and then he is borne away on a barge to Mystic Avalon. The music swells, the roll credits. But as our, uh, readers of Le Morte d'Arthur already know, that's not the end of the story. You see, now that Lancelot is free to be with his lady love, who is, you know, no longer, um, you know, uh, she's been released from her marriage to Arthur by his death, he discovers that she has taken refuge in a convent at Amesbury. And he hastens there to sweep her off to his castle in France, joyous guard, and live happily ever after. But to his surprise, Guinevere has taken the veil. She's become a nun, and when they meet, she lectures him uh, on his sinfulness and, and you know, the, the sins of his past life, and refuses to give him even so much as a parting kiss. So admonished to repentance, the sorrowful knight wends his way to Glastonbury, a.k.a. Avalon, where he is reunited with his old comrade-in-arms, Sir Bedivere. And Lancelot learns that the good old knight has miraculously discovered Arthur's tomb in the chapel of a hermitage there and has become a monk. Lancelot follows his example, assumes the monastic habit, and then in due time is ordained a priest, becoming as preeminent in piety as he had once been in knightly valor. Now, Brother Bedivere spends the rest of his days praying for the soul of his beloved monarch, King Arthur. Guinevere makes a good end. Uh, after gives up her soul after many years as abbess of the convent at Amesbury. And Father Lancelot even celebrates the former queen's funeral mass, her requiem, and then finally himself at a good old age dies in the odor of sanctity. For his last request, his body was to be interred at his castle of joyous guard. But his soul, as witnessed by the bishop who um, officiated, who sang his requiem mass, was escorted to heaven by 30,007 attending angels. Not just 30,000, 30,007. So <laughs> what we've forgotten in the modern telling of these Arthurian tales, like the uh, same with the uh, Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, is that the, the, the Arthurian legends, uh, you know, have, ultimately, they're not a tragedy. It's, in fact, it is the ultimate happy ending. All the good guys go to heaven. That's the goal of the Christian life. That's why the stories of Camelot and, and Middle-earth still resonate with people, you know, deeply. That's why they live on, because in the words of Leon Blois, in the end, the only tragedy is not to have been a saint. So, like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the Arthurian, Arthurian legends are profoundly Christian. And we're going to talk, when we come back, with the author of a book... Uh, the Knight Who Gave Us King Arthur, Sir Thomas Mallory, Knight Hospitaller. That and more, our interview with Dr. Cecilia Linton, when we return with lots more known nonsense Catholic right after these messages. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And in this segment, we are going to welcome one Dr. Cecilia Linton, author of the new book, The Knight Who Gave Us King Arthur, Sir Thomas Mallory, Knight Hospitaller. And so it is uh, my great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Linton. Dr. Cecilia Linton, welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on your show. Well, we appreciate having you. And uh, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, so... uh, But first, I I, I wish that you would uh, um, just give us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to write the book. Well, my background is... is, um, I've been an English professor. I'm retired now. But... um, when I was in graduate school, I read La Morte d'Arthur, and of course I was fascinated by it. And I took my, uh, chose Mallory as my major author for my comprehensive exams. And that's what got me started thinking about him. I was aware that it was not really known who wrote La Morte d'Arthur, which is, for those readers, those listeners who don't know this, it's a compilation of a lot of old stories from French literature way back in the day, around 1000 A.D. or something like that. Um, Not exactly dated, but Mm -hmm. early, early days. And these little stories were just mainly silly. But then they got to be more sophisticated as time went on. And in the 15th century, someone gathered them up, translated them into English, and published them under the title La Morte d'Arthur, which means the death of Arthur. Well, then, at that point, they're real literature, very sophisticated literature, and we know the man's name because he tells us in his book, this was written by Sir Thomas Mallory Knight, and um, know that he was a knight. But that's all that he told us, really. Oh, and he, the date when he finished writing the book. Mm-hmm. It was in the 15th century, and that's about it. Well, uh, people have wondered who this person was for all those 500 years. And about 125 years ago, they lit on a certain man who was uh, from Warwickshire in England because he was the only one known to be a knight. And the author had told us that he was a knight. When I say the only one, the only one named Thomas Mallory. Mm -hmm. And they've pretty much accepted that man as the author. But there have been a lot of problems with him. He was a, a thief and a, a rapist and a would-be murderer and just was a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Spent a lot of time in prison. It just doesn't go with the stories in The Death of Arthur, which are very nice, sophisticated, decent stories. Who, Sir Thomas Mallory, whoever he was, had cleaned them up and presented them to us as something that we love now. It's been very famous ever since he took the trouble to do that. And yet he was very secretive in telling only his name and his rank mm-hmm. and when he finished the book. So um, people have disagreed about who wrote it, but it dawned on me one day that everything people use to support this other man works just as well and, in fact, better for the, the Mallory that I'm arguing for, who was not from Warwickshire but from Yorkshire. His name had been mentioned in studies before, 
but nobody had ever thought about the fact that his knighthood was not secular, but that he was a knight of the church. Well, that's and that's, that's I what I wanted to that. talk. That's what I wanted to talk to yeah. about is that, you know, of course, your your investigation into the identity of Thomas Mallory author is, I mean, it is fascinating. It makes for fascinating reading. It is a journey full of twists and turns, and you weave a complex tapestry. And of course, yes. obviously, your your background in English has a great deal to do yes. with that. And, and the different uh, dialects that were spoken in England at the time. Uh, yeah. And we can't possibly do all that justice here. So oh, I, no. I, I did, I did want to ask you to yeah, tell us a bit about that discovery that this Thomas Mallory was perhaps not a secular knight, but actually uh, a knight of the order of uh, St. John of the Hospital. Well, as soon as I thought of it, it was obvious to me that all the all the evidence would fit him very well, but I had to find out the details. And so I went looking. I thought night hospitaler went going searching for night hospitaler information. And this order was started at the beginning of the Crusades mm-hmm. as uh, physicians to um, the people who fought in the Crusades and also for pilgrims who just went to the Holy Land. But as time went on, they became fighters in the Crusade. They became actual military men. So with the and became monks. So with that combination, they were monk hospitalers. They were knights as well as holy men. Mm-hmm. And they were connected very closely with the family of this particular Thomas Mallory Uh from early days, from the 1100s. They were very closely connected with that man's family. And um, it was easy. I mean, it it was interesting and comparatively easy to follow the trail once I got on the trail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of evidence available, but people just had not thought of looking there. So they didn't put it together. But I did, and I had a wonderful time. It was like reading a good mystery novel. <laughs> well, that's it. I, 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 I suspect I had as much fun reading it as you did writing it. Um, you know. <laughs> I hope so. That's good. <laughs> well, and you mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, and of course, this, not everybody realizes this. I mean, even admitting uh, the possibility of a, of, a, of a very old Welsh antecedent, you know, to some of these stories, uh, yeah. a lot of people don't realize because the, the legend of Arthur is so quintessentially English that that uh, the the stories were first written primarily in Norman French. And, of course, the aristocracy yeah. of England at that time, you know, after 1066, was Norman French. You know, so it's not yeah. terribly surprising. But And then they were translated into English by Mallory in the 1400s. But, as you've, you've kind of intimated this, he's, he did more than just translate, right? He, oh, yeah. Like you say, he cleaned up the stories and... I believe that it's that it's you know part of your thesis that he added to them, particularly the character of Lancelot. In our last couple of minutes here, if if you could uh, expound on that. Oh yes, Lancelot is known in in worldly circles everywhere. Everybody knows the name Lancelot, right? And he's most famous for having an adulterous affair with the queen, right? Um, wife of King Arthur. But Mallory, even though he knows that, he's read all those stories and worked with them intimately. He changed the story in that he never actually accuses them of adultery. He allows the reader to decide to um, see either way. Maybe they are, maybe they are not, but they definitely love each other. He changes the whole question of 
unchastity to the question of pride. And that becomes Lancelot's major sin throughout the book, which works in very, very nicely with the um, St. Bernard, who had a lot to do with founding the order that our Mallory was a, a member of. And so we see a whole different way of looking at Lancelot. That's just one example throughout the book. He sort of mm -hmm. purifies things. But that's a major example because Lancelot is the major character in the book. <clears throat> right. And I wonder, I wonder if maybe Mallory was projecting a little bit because, you know, you see uh, in, in, in Le Morte Dorothy, like I mentioned in the last segment uh, before we brought you on, that when you look at the Arthur movies, it always ends with uh, the sword going back into the lake and Arthur being, you know, taken off yeah. on the barge and the, the music swells and the credits roll. And we don't see what yeah. happened after that. No, we don't see that. In fact, T.H. White wrote a, a book about that particular thing, particular thing, he named it The Once and Future King, as if Arthur's expected to come back someday. Right. <clears throat> well, there are these Christian themes throughout the book. And of course, our made, one major tenet of our own faith is that Christ will come back someday right. at the end of time and so forth. Mallory doesn't, doesn't hit these themes too hard. He suggests things right. that uh, there's a certain Christ-like quality to his Arthur. You can take it or leave it alone. But that definitely is there, that this mystery at the end, what happens next? Mm -hmm. As far as mm -hmm. Arthur is concerned, yeah. Well, that and, and also and, that's connected with the the cross, uh -huh. which was lost in the Crusades. Maybe Arthur will come back and find the true cross, and in fact, uh, that is a part of the story. Mm -hmm. That Mallory says all these knights will go back and find the true cross when Arthur comes again. But the true cross was found in the meantime, and but but uh, that doesn't come into the story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, the other thing too. You should talk about him purifying Lancelot. The fact that Lancelot doesn't, you know, in the end, it's like, well, Arthur's dead, so me and the queen are gonna go back to Joyous Garden, live mm -hmm. happily ever after. And instead, they wind up both you would think. entering. Yeah, they both enter religion instead and do penance for their yeah. sins. And and that's right. You know, and then die a, a good death, which, like I, I mentioned. Yeah. In the last segment, that's the ultimate yeah. happy ending, right? It is. In fact, it 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 ends with the person who's speaking at Mal. I'm not Mallory Lancelot's mm -hmm. funeral. That he was the godliest man who ever came among press of knights, mm -hmm. because that time he has become a saint on earth. And when he dies, he has a smile on his face and a sweet odor of sanctity around his body. That's the happy ending, as you say. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. Okay, also, um, you know, we got just a couple of minutes here. Um, the Holy Grail. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's a separate story that's been stuck in in the middle. Mm -hmm. But it works. Right. And it is really believed that a Cistercian monk wrote that story. Right. For several reasons. All this evidence for these things came to my hand and, uh, and convinced me immediately because the evidence was so strong. That story was written by a monk, and it's really a pilgrimage of grace, as mm -hmm. one of the uh, critics has called it. You, you set out to find the Holy Grail because what you're really looking for is God. Right. And Lancelot doesn't find it. He doesn't achieve the Holy Grail. 
but he has a, he is given the humility at last to understand that his sin is pride and that he needs to step back and stop being so prideful mm-hmm. if he wants to be saved. So the Holy Grail works into the story very well, and that's what most people say first when they ask me about it. What about the Holy Grail? And, and, and I agree that it's a very important part. And it's one of the major points of interest because the, the version of the Holy Grail that he used was only one virgin, version, the one that was written by the Cistercian monk. Right. But there are lots of versions of the Holy Grail that he could have used, but he didn't. He chose that one. And that's really good evidence for my point, which is that he himself was a monk. And not only a monk, but a monk of one of the two orders that were more or less founded by the Cistercian Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. All right, boy, what couldn't end better than on Bernard of Clairvaux. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Linton. Uh, Everybody go out immediately and uh, available all usual places. The Knight Who Gave Us King Arthur. Okay, and we'll be back with more No Nonsense Catholic right after this. Thanks, Dr. Lynn. Thank you. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I want to say thank you one more time uh, to Dr. Cecilia Linton for being with us today and telling us about her terrific book, The Night Who Gave Us King Arthur. Sir Thomas Mallory Knight Hospitaller. If you are in any way interested in uh, medieval English or medieval England or medieval history or Arthuriana or, uh, um, you know, particularly if you just like a a good detective story, scholarly detective story, this book's for you. I really do uh, appreciate her work and, uh, and I can't recommend it to you highly enough. All right. Moving on, we're going to talk about the gospel uh, for this upcoming Sunday in the traditional ordo, the uh, 19th Sunday after Pentecost. It's taken from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus spoke to the chief priests and the Pharisees in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who made a marriage for his son. And he sent his servants to call them that were invited to the marriage, and they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell them that were invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my beeves and fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come ye to the marriage. But they neglected, and went their ways, one to his farm, and another to his merchandise, and the rest laid hands on his servants, and having treated them contumeliously, put them to death. But when the king had heard of it, he was angry, and sending his armies, he destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, The marriage indeed is ready, but they that were invited were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many souls as you shall find, call them to the marriage. And his servants going forth into the ways gathered together all that they found, both bad and good. And the marriage was filled with guests. And the king went in to see the guests, and he saw there a man who had not on a wedding garment. And he saith to him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having on a wedding garment? But he was silent. Then the king said to the waiters, Bind his hands and feet, and cast him into the exterior darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So the parable of the marriage feast. As we know, parables are stories that our Lord tells in order to illustrate some point. So all the characters and the events of of these parables have an allegorical meaning. Uh, In this uh, parable of the great feast, the king signifies God the Father, and therefore his son is the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. The bride is the church, and the marriage feast is our Lord's spiritual union with the church. We call him the bridegroom in the church, the bride of Christ. The invited guests, then, are those who are called to believe. Now, those who accept the invitation are those who are spiritually united to our Lord and who have a share in the treasures of his grace. Those guests who were first invited are the Jews who were called by God's servants, that is to say, his prophets, all the way down to St. John the Baptist, to prepare themselves by penance for the coming of the Savior, the coming of the Messiah. But they did not obey the call. For a kingdom, the, the condition of which uh, belonging to which was penance, which is to say admitting that they were sin uh, sinners and in need of redemption, that did not please uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees particularly who believed that by following all the 600 and some odd tenets of the Mosaic law that they were in fact without sin. Uh, the parable is also prophetic in that uh, because when the work of redemption was completed, after the death and resurrection of Christ and the church was founded, then God sent other servants into the world, namely the apostles and the disciples, to, to warn the, the chosen people that all things were ready. And now is the time to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that after the descent of the Holy Spirit, some 3,000 Jews present in Jerusalem for the feast were baptized after St. Peter's Pentecost sermon. So, But many of the chosen people were still looking for an earthly Messiahs, uh, one who would deliver them from the yoke of Rome. And, and they had no appreciation for the idea of a kingdom of grace and salvation, right? a kingdom that's not of this world. And so they paid no heed to his urgent call and the urgent call um, of the gospel. The book of Acts shows us how the scribes and Pharisees uh, reacted, how they, they persecuted, maltreated, even put to death uh, God's servants for daring to deliver his message. Uh, the apostles were imprisoned. They were scourged. St. Stephen was the first martyr, stoned to death. Uh, the first martyr, but hardly the last. And then in 70 AD, as Jesus predicted, Almighty God sent the Roman army to execute his judgment on Jerusalem. The Romans killed a million people, and they burned the city to the ground. Uh, as he prophesied in another place, there was not one stone left upon another. And then God sent his apostles amongst the Gentiles, those who had hitherto been, you know, wandering through the world, faithless, homeless, uh, and invited them to the feast, right? Sent them out to the highways and the byways. Now, these accepted his invitation and are still accepting it and will go on doing so till the end of time. The church is filled with guests. But in the first part of the parable, our Lord relates in, in a few words the history of his kingdom on earth that is, the church militant, up to the time of his return. He foretold that Israel, taken as a whole, obviously not every individual, but taken as a whole, would reject the gospel and would therefore, you know, uh, be punished by God, that the Gentiles would believe and would little by little be received into his church. And it's only when um, 
the wedding is completely furnished with guests at the real marriage feast, which is the second part of the parable is concerned, it can take place. And that marriage feast represents eternal happiness. Now that must be preceded by the judgment, which will establish each one whether he has on the wedding garment, that is, uh, whether or not he's clothed in sanctifying grace. Whosoever is found in a state of grace, uh, not found in a state of grace, rather, will be shut out of the kingdom. Shut out of the kingdom of heaven, cast into the exterior darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus mentions only one man in the parable as being found without the wedding garment. But that's in order to show that not even one will escape the test. To obtain salvation, it's not enough to believe. It's not enough to just be a member of the church. In fact, if you believe and are baptized and remember the Catholic Church and, and remain in your sins, not only will you not be saved, you'll be the more severely judged. You know, we must be clothed with and be able to present before the judgment of God that robe of innocence. In other words, to be in the state of sanctifying grace. The grace that we received in holy baptism and in which we must must either have persevered or been reclothed in that garment through the uh, absolution, the sacrament of penance. The alternative, of course, is hell, uh, a place of, of punishment that is outside of God's presence and into which not a single ray, not, not, not an not a iota of grace or glory can penetrate, which is why our Lord calls it the exterior darkness, outside and no light. The lost souls are imprisoned. They cannot go free. They're shut in without any help, without any hope <clears throat> in hell. Pardon me. In hell, there's nothing but lamentation, weeping and gnashing of teeth because it is an eternity of pain and rage and regret and despair. Now notice, though, that Jesus says the rejected guest was silent. Because he was without excuse. Here upon the earth, careless Christians are always making excuses, both to themselves and others. Hey, I'm a nice guy. I'm, I'm certainly no worse than the next guy. And it's not like I've ever murdered anybody. You know, God wouldn't send me to hell. But before the judgment seat of the all-knowing and all-holy God, they will likewise have to keep silent. The righteousness, the justice of God's judgment will be manifest to all on the last day. And in that all-holy light, each one of us will see himself as he really is. And those who are obliged to march into hell will do so under their own power, and none will be able to say, that's not fair. Because then all will realize that hell is not filled with those whom God has rejected, but those who have rejected God. So there's more than one meaning to this parable. The wedding face, uh, feast can be understood as the church, as the kingdom of heaven, and as holy communion. Uh, you know, the, the kingdom of God is within us, and holy communion is the marriage supper of the Lamb, that feast in which the divine Savior himself comes and visits the individual soul. And the church, by her ministers, invites us to the holy feast, obliging Catholics to hear Mass every Sunday and every Holy Day. Pardon me, I, just, I felt like I had to sneeze, but because I knew I was going to sneeze, I didn't. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm sorry, they're, they're, um, 
being called to heaven by, or called to communion, rather, by, by the servants of God, by his ministers. So, obliging us to hear Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, commanding us to receive Holy Communion at least once in the year during Easter time, and encouraging us to frequent communion. And why? Because a Catholic who does not partake of this feast on earth may find himself shut out from the marriage feast in heaven. But it's of paramount importance to remember that only a Catholic who is in a state of grace, only one who is Catholic and has on that wedding garment, may receive the bread of angels. For he who presumes to receive Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin will be cast, if he does not repent, into the outer darkness of hell, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth, and that's no nonsense. All right. Last week, I mentioned an article by Cardinal Dolan of New York, who uh, said that the response, the, the pre-synod on synodality surveys uh, in New York showed that a majority of their respondents claimed that one of the reasons, the main reason people don't go to Mass is because it's too long. Uh, somebody once said that if there was only one priest in all the world saying Mass, that Catholics from all around the world would move heaven and earth to get there and participate. And the same might be said of the traditional Latin Mass as it becomes more and more rare by Episcopal decree, it also becomes more and more crowded. But what about the, the regular Catholic going to the new Mass and, and board stiff? What does he do? I'm going to answer that question when we return with more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm talking right before the break about uh, Cardinal Dolan's article uh, from last week about the survey in New York pre-Synod where a majority of respondents said that the problem, you know, the, the reason that Catholics don't come back to Mass is because it's too long. And, and I think that that Mass is too long argument is just kind of a variant of one I've heard since I became Catholic, you know, what's almost 30 years ago. And that is, Mass is boring. Now, I'm an advocate of the traditional Latin Mass, but I can certainly recognize that one can exclusively attend the Novus Ordo Missae and be a good, uh, even traditional Catholic. And many good bishops, countless good priests, regularly celebrate the new Mass, uh, or even exclusively celebrate the new Mass. They, they, they exclusively pray the, the new Liturgy of the Hours and clearly have the Catholic faith. Right? Certainly, no one of goodwill would suggest that Benedict XVI or, or Pope St. John Paul II were not good popes because they celebrated the new Mass or because they you know, promoted the new catechism uh, and, and so forth. And, and I'm, I'm sure that based on sheer numbers, the majority of this audience uh, <clears throat> regularly assists at the, the, at the new Mass. And so I wanted to direct some comments precisely to you. It's not too long ago that I was reading a book by, uh, or a little booklet really, by a certain Father Edward Maristany called Loving the Holy Mass. And he's a Novus Ordo priest, and he's talking about the new Mass. And in his introduction, he talks about how he was assigned to give presentations, <clears throat> pardon me, give talks to Catholic youth groups. 
at you know high schools and so forth, precisely to try and inspire them to love the Mass. And unfortunately, he said, the first question the kids always ask after the talk is over, in the Q&A session, they ask, how late can I come to Mass and still fulfill my Sunday obligation? And the second question is like it. How soon can I leave and still fulfill my obligation? Further, he said that their number one impression of the Mass is that it's boring. And as we can see, according to Cardinal Dolan, it's not just kids. But that's true of many adults as well. Maybe even you. And why should this be? Well, first of all, I would suggest that Mass is not meant to be entertaining. You know, and so trying to make the Mass more enjoyable or relatable or whatever is at best ill-conceived because Mass isn't primarily about holding our attention. If you want entertainment, man, uh, the movie and TV, smartphone, they can do it so much better uh, than your local youth group, you know, or your pastor. Holy Mass is about the sacramental presentation of the, the, the sacrifice of Calvary. It's about the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ becoming presence under the appearance of bread and wine. It's nothing short of a miracle. But just as the majority of people who were present at Calvary didn't understand the true nature of what was happening on the cross, Catholics won't understand the true nature of what's happening on the altar unless they're engaged with the spiritual realities that can only be perceived by the eyes of faith. So I want to address some concrete ways to help you experience those spiritual realities. Last month, uh, it was, gosh, there's so many Marian feasts in, in uh, September, and I think it was on the Feast of the Nativity of Mary that I decided that I would pray the, the whole rosary in addition to the five decades that I pray with the, you know, every day with the family. Furthermore, I was inspired not just to pray the 15 decades uh, of the rosary, but also the chaplet of John Paul II, which is also known as the Luminous Mysteries. Now, each mystery of the rosary has a certain virtue attached to it. Uh, sorry, I feel like I'm going to sneeze again. I, I apologize. Uh, in the Agony of Garden, for example, we pray that God would grant us true contrition. Um, and in the uh, ascension, for, you know, we ask for the virtue of hope and so on. And as I prayed the rosary with my prayer book that lists these various virtues, uh, I discovered that there is a petition for the fifth luminous mystery, which is the institution of the Eucharist. And the petition is to attain active participation at Mass. Active participation. Now, that was obviously a watchword of the Church uh, back at Vatican II, especially after the introduction to the new Mass. Uh, and it's been a maxim of the liturgical movement. It had been for 100 years, all the way back to the time of St. Pius X and, and even before. And in fact, it was St. Pius X who coined the motto, don't just pray at Mass, pray the Mass, which in his day meant following the Latin prayers in your hand missile and then um, making, the making the responses right? Dominus Fobiscum et cum spiritu tuo et al. St. Pius taught that all the faithful should be able to pray and sing the responses and the people's prayers at the Holy Mass, so the Sanctus, the Gloria, the Credo, etc., in Latin. And this, although not everybody is aware of this, it was echoed by the Council Fathers of Vatican II in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, active participation. 
And I remember before my conversion, the, you know, as a non-Catholic at Mass, feeling kind of lost and awkward because I didn't know what to say or when to stand up or sit down or, or, or whatever, when everybody else was uh, knew just what to do. And uh, I remember years later, my mom and dad, who were not Catholic, came to my eldest daughter's first communion Mass, which was in the extraordinary form. And at one point, you know, I mean, the whole congregation is sitting, they were kneeling, and then the priest says, Dominus Fobiscum, and everybody stands up, and then he says, Oremus, turns back to the altar, and we all just sit right back down. And my, my poor mom, God rest her soul, who had just managed to stand back up, it was so exasperated when everybody immediately sat back down that she actually said out loud, oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> but if you've ever been to a traditional Mass, uh, everybody heard her, Okay. But prior to the modern era, you know, there, there, there were no rubrics governing uh, the postures of the congregation. You know, when to stand, sit, kneel, it's a matter of local custom, and hence the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And that all became more universal after the codification of the Roman might by uh, St. Pius V after the Council of Trent. But there were still no official rules, no rubrics, if you will, for the people. And what most people did was just to follow the acolytes in choir, right, in the, in the chairs and kneelers on either side of the, of the sanctuary. So uh, the postures of the acolytes are rubrical in nature. They do have a, a certain meaning. And in any case, there's, there's a lot of activity in the pew. That's what I'm getting at. You know, an active participation, though, is something to attain. That means it's, it has to mean something more than just going through the motions. You know, I don't know how many times... Uh, since becoming Catholic, I've heard the joke of a, of a Catholic absentmindedly genuflecting before he takes a seat in a movie theater, right, just out of force of habit. And the point is, uh, it, it is well to know the meanings of the postures and to be conscious of them rather than just acting out of routine. So to begin with, the sitting. Sitting is a posture of listening. Catholics sit for the first reading for the responsorial psalm or the gradual in the traditional Mass. Uh, we sit for the second reading in the Novus Ordo. We sit for the homily or sermon and, and the offertory or the preparation of the gifts. Sitting shows that we're ready to hear and receive, that we're paying attention. We sit to listen. And then standing. Well, we stand for prayer. Now, standing has been a posture of prayer for the Jewish people since before the time of Jesus. And standing during, I mean, you see plenty of examples throughout the Bible. So as Catholics, we continue to utilize that posture uh, for prayer today. And, and some examples in the Mass is that when we stand uh, for the introit and for the opening prayer, the collect. We stand for the Lord's Prayer. We stand for the prayers of the faithful. We stand for the credo, right, which is the recitation of the Nicene Creed that Christians have, have believed since the very early centuries. We stand to affirm our unity of belief together as Catholic Christians, even though everyone says, I believe, but we say it together. And, of course, we stand for the gospel. Now, standing uh, in our culture is a sign for respect. And certainly we have a particular respect for the gospel, which recounts the, the words and deeds of Jesus himself. Traditionally, however, standing for the gospel um, was meant to represent being prepared to take the good news to the world, to, to share and defend the gospel. In other words, to stand up for the gospel. And finally, we stand for the processions, you know, at the beginning and the end of Mass as a sign of respect to the celebrant, the priest or bishop who's celebrating Mass and is celebrating in the person of Christ, in persona Christi. 
you know, uh, he processes in to begin the Mass, processes out when it's ended. And then finally, we have the kneeling. You know, um, when you enter the church, you genuflect. You bend and touch your knee to the floor before you take your seat. And that's meant to uh, acknowledge the Eucharistic presence in the tabernacle. Uh, Catholics believe that Christ is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. That when he said, this is my body, he meant that literally. And he's veiled be, you know, beneath the appearance of bread and wine, but his, his presence is fully and truly there. The earliest Christians believe this. We still believe it right through to the present day. So we acknowledge his presence by genuflecting. Now, if there's no tabernacle in the sanctuary, you are still meant to make a profound bow. Why? You bow towards the altar because that is where the transubstantiation will take place and has taken place. So, um, unfortunately, I've seen today so many Catholics who fail to genuflect or, or bow, even at the traditional Mass. And that's unfortunate because that genuflection, it's a powerful sign that demonstrates that Catholics truly believe that, that Christ is present in the Eucharist, bowing towards the altar, that, that, that there's a real sacrifice. And then kneeling proper, the times that we kneel during the Mass. See, we stand out of respect, but kneeling is something more than respect. Kneeling represents worship, adoration. The Bible says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bend. So, you know, we kneel during the consecration because Christ is becoming present on the altar. We kneel before and after Holy Communion. We kneel because we believe that Christ is truly present in the Blessed Sacrament. That's what makes it Holy Communion. As uh, St. Paul in the, in the Vulgate, or the old Douay translation, you know, the, the bread, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? And so we kneel during those parts of Mass and stay kneeling until the elements are returned to the sanctuary. All right, I have actually some, some further tips on ways to, to help active participation at the Mass. We'll talk about those next week because, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So I want to thank Dr. Cecilia Linton for being with us today. I want to thank you for, for listening to this program. I want to thank you for your support of this program and of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We especially appreciate your prayers. Can't do it without your prayers, honestly. We also need uh, financial support. If God has blessed you in such a way that you have a little something left over in these days of, of, uh, of, of want, uh, please, if you can send some of that our way. That's what keeps us on the air. That's what keeps us coming into your home, your, your smartphone, wherever it is you listen to these programs. And I hope that you benefit greatly from them because that's why we do it. And in the meantime, I'm Matthew Arnold for No Nonsense Catholic. I'd just like to say, may God richly bless you and your family.